Welcome to Explore History's podcast on World War II, titled Dear CB, A Soldier's Experience of War Through Letters. We left our story in Episode 2 with Stuart recounting the trials and tribulations of the Battle of Tobruk. The conditions he faced were extremely difficult. He on many occasions found himself in the thick of it. However, he came through no worse for wear, no doubt due to both his own common sense and a bit of luck. After a spell in hospital in Alexandria, where he was being once again treated for malaria, he rejoined his regiment. So we'll pick up his story on letter 14. Dear CB, For four and a half months we've been living in the proverbial land of milk and honey. I spent ten days of sick leave in Alexandria after leaving hospital, then returned to the bosom of the regiment in Jerusalem. The regiment has been relieved bit by bit, and RHQ and the squadron are concentrating at Allenby Barracks, Jerusalem, one of the most comfortable stations in the Middle East, as most people had finished their leave and we were all more or less concentrated. We had a very simple church service for those of the regiment who had fallen and for the many who had been captured. Only about 30 people got back from Crete. We didn't do a great deal of work at Allenby Barracks. We were reforming, regrouping had little or no equipment, and we were not sure what our future was. We officers used to ride before breakfast. In Palestine, this is a wonderful time of the day. Bright atmosphere, yet still cool. We used to ride in country up above the barracks. Jericho lay sway below, the Dead Sea shimmering in the morning light. I'm afraid this is rather a disjointed, rangy kind of epistle. My mind's sort of gone blank. But as I say, the officers rode in the morning, about a third of us. We all played cricket in the afternoon, and the early evening sometimes played tennis at the sporting club. Quite often after dinner we'd go out, um, but nightlife in Jerusalem isn't so thrilling. In the morning and between 4.30 and 6 in the afternoon we'd train. King David Hotel is certainly a wonderful looking place. It is huge but not ugly. Its terrace gardens are beautiful, and from them one can see across the old city of Jerusalem. I went to the old city, visited the Wailing Wall, and the mosques. I also saw and was singularly impressed with Gordon's tomb. One night with water up to our knees and candles in our hands we crawled through Ezekiel's we went through the tunnel. I cannot write clearly about the religious or historic side of Jerusalem because although I made several visits I know singularly little about it. I could describe much more clearly the detention barracks in Jerusalem, which I visited and and one in Jerusalem, which I visited one day as orderly officer. Jerusalem is certainly a town of contrasts, the old city and the new. It's also a nerve centre of Jewish and Arab interests. It is a beautiful place in a way. At this stage of this and At this stage of the war, I went on my first course, a regimental intelligence officer's course, which was held in Cairo. It lasted for three weeks, and during this time, we students from British and Dominion forces were all billeted in one of Cairo's more important, but not leading hotels, the National. The accommodation weren't too good, but the food was quite eatable. At this stage of the war, I went on my first course, a regimental intelligence officer's course, which was held in Cairo. 
It lasted for three weeks, and during this time, we students from British and Dominion forces were all billeted in one of Cairo's more important but not leading hotels, the National. The accommodation wasn't too good, but the food was quite eatable. Cairo is a strange, even fascinating city. It is hot, and it teems with uniforms. It is full of fast American cars, rather in different cinemas, open air in summer, and flower shops. There are lovely girls, well-guarded and well-chaperoned by their European families. Most afternoons, if not asleep, we... Most afternoons, if not asleep, in bed for a siesta, I spent at Gazira Sporting Club. Most afternoons, if not asleep in bed for a siesta, I spent in Jazeera Sporting Club, which is one of the finest institutions in the whole wide world. Besides excellent club premises, one can swim, play squash, polo, tennis, croquet, bowls, cricket, and in winter, hockey, soccer, and rugger. Also, it is cheap. It consists of a great slab of beautifully green grass thrown down in the middle of this huge, dusty, and third European, two-thirds native city. It is a great boon. During this course, which was most interesting, I paid a brief visit to GHQ. I never realized it was so large or so imposing, and those boys certainly work long hours. If I hadn't so much to tell you about our present location, I'd write more about Cairo, but I expect I get another opportunity to visit the city later on. After this intelligence course finishes, I went after the intelligence course finished, I went to Palopolis. I hadn't so much to tell you about our present location. I'd write more about Cairo, but I expect I get another opportunity to visit the city later on. After the intelligence course finished, I went on to Heliopolis to do an interpretation of air photographs course. When I reported back to the regiment, training was in full when I reported back to the regiment, training was in full swing. Our future had been decided. We were to become an armored regiment, part of the 8th Armed Brigade. The other two regiments were the Scots Greys and the Staffordshire Yeomanry. All three regiments have been in the same division, 1st first, first Sav Division since the beginning of the war. We had a few American Stuart tanks, Honeys, and we were doing skeleton training on these with the help of a few American technical sergeants first-class chaps. Unfortunately, they've now left. Recently, our number of tanks was increased, and they still tell us that when we go to our new abode, we'll be made up to strength, and then go off and fight in the wars again. As for me, I'm now a regimental intelligence officer. We are stationed in a marvelous spot, just outside a Jewish settlement called Pardis, Pardis Hanna. We are stationed in a marvelous spot, just outside a Jewish settlement called Pardis Hanna about 40 minutes drive from Haifa and an hour from Tel Aviv. Pardis Hanna, Karkur, and Kafir Pines are all close together. They're best examples of Jewish independent farming colonies as distinct from communal settlements. Independent farming and trade are carried on here. The Jews were, I think, a little suspicious of us at first, but now our men enter into their communal life after training is over, and nowadays we train hard. We play a lot of rugger and still manage to ride in the evening between half past five and seven. The country around here is peaceful and quietly lovely. Orange groves, grassy lanes, pine trees, and cypress trees. The sun sets behind this and the war is in some other world. 
After dinner, we either go to the flicks in the camp or go into the partisana and go to the films there or else into the officer's bar at Genatus, the best cafe in the locality. Recently, I was lucky. I had four days amongst the snow-capped mountains in the, of the Lebanon. The Lebanon is magnificent. I wish I could go back there. What does the future hold? Yours, Stuart. Letter 15. Dear CB, we've moved into... Dear CB, we've moved from Palestine, and somehow I think we, as a regiment, have seen the last of that country. What a move it was. Two regiments and a train, and we eventually landed up 40 miles from Cairo at this wretched place called K. The funny thing is that now I'm here in the semi-suburban part of the desert. Mine goes back to those days in Palestine, that four-day trip to Syria. I remember our last scheme in Palestine, the feeling we had when bivouacked for the night. I remember thinking, can anything be like this ever again? Will this moment come back and live some other time? The balm of the autumn night and the crackle of the wood fire. The husky murmuring voices of soldiers as they cook their evening meal. I smelt the smell of frying food and my hunger is wetted and enhanced. It is nine o'clock and the tall cypress trees lazily sway backwards and forwards, impelled by the soft breeze. The trees surround me and I look at them stretching gracefully and gently towards the great unknown that makes life worth living. The moon is full and the atmosphere crystal clear and light thistled down clouds drift swiftly across to forming a transparent barrier between earth and moon. As they cross the moon, the clouds flicker silver for a few seconds. I hear the pierred dogs bark and theirs is a wall of frustrated woe. As I sit on my camp bed surrounded by trees and seeing the flickers of fire through the dusky tree trunks, I hear again the hungry, hopeful voices of tired, contented men. I feel I have transcended for a moment in the world that is too much for us, and I say, surrounded by such a place, this too is... is I feel I have transcended for a moment the world that is too much for, with, with us. I feel I have transcended for a moment the world that is too much with us, and I say, surrounded by such a place, this too is war. It's amazing how one's memory can swing back like that, and how, in a few moments, one's mind can go searching into the future, ever wondering. And then sitting there in the sand, with the noise of tank engines revving up for a moment. And then sitting there in the sand, with the noise of tank engines revving up for a mental background, I think of Syria. When I went to Syria, it was in the mood of skepticism. I was almost unaware of the beauty that was waiting for me there, as it will be waiting for any other men in another thousand years, unless somebody breaks it up into little bits and sells the pieces as souvenirs. I went there knowing nothing, prepared to sneer at the French, Vichy, and Free, and to find continual fault with the administration. But you cannot find fault with mountains. You cannot sneer at the sun. You are a fool and a blind man if you cannot see beauty. I will not attempt to describe Damascus, Beirut, and most remarkable, Baalbek. I'm not writing a guidebook, and I've spent no considerable length of time in any Syrian town. I spent no considerable time in Syria or the Lebanon. The Lebanon. When I was a little boy, I was captivated by what wonderful simple phrase, white as the snows of Lebanon. I held it to mind as a dream vision and cherished it constantly. The Lebanon. To me, it always seemed a lovely name. 
Amidst the peaks and gorges of the Lebanon and the anti-Lebanon, along the winding mountain tracks and fine macadamized roads, live a happy and contented people for which no one is to praise or blame. Places often create the state of mind of their people, and so it is here. Great mountain peaks ranging up, tier on tier to the sky, and playing a lovely silvery game of hide-and-seek with the lesser order of clouds. Rock and granite left carefully here and there, and all over the place, trees and then more trees, pine, fir, cypress, poplar, green trees, almost as green as those of an English wood. The sides of gorges slide down a thousand feet and more, and as you gaze down into the depths, you expect to find, even amongst this loveliness, devastation. And what do you see? Not despair, but a pretty white village, solid and obviously working out its own destiny, with bright red rooftops. And you say, the French have brought the spirit of their Alps to this lovely place and lent it to the Lebanese. Splashing, sparkling waterfalls rush down laughing and being happy all the time. They're crystal white, white as the snows of Lebanon. One day as I climbed up well past Antura on my rocky way to Bjord, the sun was making me drowsy. One day as I climbed up well past Antura on my rocky way to Bjorge, the sun was making its drowsy preparations to go to bed. The sky was tinged with orange, red, yellow, all the shades of pink. I looked out and I was in fairyland. Peak after proud peak was flung out below me and they were becoming swaddled in clouds. Then too there are the great barren, stark, naked mountains, bare and striking. Sand colored and lifeless, guardians of a past age and constant monuments to those who don't use their talents that provide. They provide the Jekyll to the Hyde. Mentioning proper names, I can only say that Walt Disney created the Lebanon in the image of one of his gorgeous phantasms or else. And what is far more likely, he is a reincarnated Lebanese from some past age. Also, as the world well knows, there are Roman ruins in Baalbek. Oh, seeing them, I wished I could, if only for a day, go back 2,000 years and do as the Romans did. I just read all that through and it strikes me as being really slushy. Certainly, the atmosphere seems pretty slushy. And what a journey here we had. We shared our train with the Greys. It drew out from Rehovat Station at about 10.30 in the morning. We arrived at K at half past eight the following morning. When we left Palestine in a hurry, we all thought that we were going into action straight away. We were surprised to be dumped down here in the desert in a semi-permanent camp. However, it's not so bad. We're missing well. We're messing well. Yours, Stuart. Letter 16. Dear CB, When we came down here after the first few unsettling days of our arrival, we all thought that the regiment would be speedily equipped that we'd be off to the wars again. As it is, we are being supplied with tanks very slowly, and so far our training has been what you might call more or less skeleton. Each troop uses the tanks, stewards, of which there are three or more to each squadron, for a fortnight, and then hands them over to the next troop on the squadron. This means that the tanks are passing through each troop in each squadron once in two months. But all the while, odd driblets are coming through and increasing our strength. For the past few weeks, the weather has been appalling. It's been a semi-persistent sandstorm whipped up by a slashing, bitingly cold wind. The sand gets into everything, into the food, into one's mouth and ears. 
The whole time one has to wear goggles and go about muffled up. The tents flap about like sails let loose. Nobody can hear what anybody is saying, which is probably an excellent thing. Went down to the village of K this morning and saw the Egyptian villagers as they really are. And that's saying something. You stop the car and a score of wretched little children rush up and attempt to sell you bad eggs and monkey nuts. The other day we sallied forth on our biggest exercise so far. The ford in the nights are always cold. Riding in a fast American tank, our honeys do 40 with the governor on. I suppose riding in any tank you experience every sensation, every emotion except that of love. There is no love in tanks. If you have any feelings of affection for your crews and troop, they realize only when you have, and they have, feet firmly placed on the ground again. There are many things that can go wrong in tank training. Nearly always they go wrong. Some days are worse than others, and the worst days are when you have to go out in a sandstorm. After a time, that becomes ghastly, and when it is all... After a time, that becomes ghastly, and after a time, you realize that tank warfare is as tough a proposition as any fighting can be. While it is on, you probably are too tired and too bothered to realize anything. There's a slight sandstorm blowing, always accompanied by a hot, sticky atmosphere. The squadron leader gives the order to mount. One is already gritted and grated with sand. One's head is almost covered with a monstrous, futuristic-looking crash helmet. And if it was, at one time, the shape of things to come, then God help the present. Covering the eyes are goggles, army issue or spray shields, anti-gas Covering the eyes are goggles, army issues, or spray shields. Anti-gas also issue, army. Over the body is a suit of overalls, invariably ripped at the armpits, and there are web belt and web braces, the latter to hand out dead and wounded members of the crew. The latter to hand out dead and wounded members of the crew. On the feet are boots of one's own fancy, and they're going to get hot anyway. This early juncture, however, although glassy yet grimy beads of sweat are trickling down the cheeks, one is full of an, an optimism which is entirely unwarranted. One hopes things are going to go all right, but these hopes are but illusions to be shattered. The signal to start up is given. One then mounts and moves off. Your first anxiety is that the crew commander is going to move off too. This is about the least of the worries. All the emotions and experiences thus far as nothing. One settles oneself into this sardine box on wheels. Tucked away in front on the left-hand side in quite a comfortable seat is the driver, driving closed down. This means he has only a small slit to look through. Behind him stands the gunner, about a feet away from you, the crew commander. On the right-hand side of the shaft is the driver operator with his radio set. You, the commander, have your feet on the shaft and head and shoulders appear out of the turret. In no time in the steward tank does the commander sit, although they say the new models have little seats in the turret, unless he is a fool enough to perch himself on the coppola, in which case the tank will res resent it and do his level best to pitch him off. When the three other members of your crew are settled and sure of themselves, you're ready to start. You put on your headphones, give a warning order to the gunner who transmits it in turn to the driver, then you give a warning to the gunner who 
give a warning to the gunner who transmits it to, in turn to the driver, then you grab the signaling flags. Yellow for the junior tank of your troop of three, red for the senior, and for the first time you start to wave your flags in the air. In your mind, quite clearly is the formation which you want your troops to travel, as each crew commander has his own interpretation of the formation. Things don't always turn out as they should. The rest of the morning is spent carrying out instructions of those set in high places of authority. It is given up to herring, swerving, yelling, and getting balled at by one squadron leader, very probably even the colonel. One learns much from all of this. But the clearest lesson of all is that training is necessary, oh so very necessary. Life is full of many, many lessons. One of the truest is that if one desires to succeed, one must train. The better trained one is, the better one's chances of success. This morning at 9 o'clock, Ron Hepton and I piled our two troops, those who were not on some specific duty, into the back of a three-tonner and set off optimistically to find a desert monastery that was supposed to be quite near. This monastery is named Daramokarius and is supposed to be one of the oldest Christian monasteries known to mankind. It is captive and it took some finding, being settled down amidst baby mountains of sandstone which sparkle in the sun. For all the strange things I've seen in the Middle East, this, I think, is the strangest so far. In itself and in its setting, it is typical of the Foreign Legion desert fortress of popular imagination. With its consistent background of sand, it makes a strange picture. Surrounded by four high walls with sentry lookouts, as an inner courtyard. It is certainly a dramatic-looking place. Our visit wasn't a howling success because we toiled the bell our visit wasn't a howling success because we told the bell and our tolling broke the rope. Last night we went to an Enza concert. It was pathetically bad and very dirty. It's a very great mistake to think the troops like this kind of thing because quite uh, definitely they do not. It's ridiculous to blame the performers because their policy is laid down, I should think, by London. Send out all the old Sunday papers you can. The men love them. Yours, Stuart. Letter 17. Dear CB, when we were in Palestine and things were very quiet and looked as though centuries would pass before we were in action again, the question of my going to the staff college at Haifa was discussed. Nothing came of it. However, shortly after we arrived at K, the brigade received two vacancies for the second course at the junior staff college. However, shortly after we arrived at K, the brigade received two vacancies for the second course at the junior staff school, which had been opened up in the meantime. The colonel asked me if I'd like to go. I was a senior subaltern in the regiment, would have been the next captain. He left the choice entirely with me, and I decided, after considering the matter very carefully, to allow my name to be put forward as a nominee. I was selected. The last ten days I spent with the regiment were most unhappy. It was only after I learned that I was going to the JSC that British reverses in the desert commenced. It was clear that what was to have become our great offensive was beginning to backslide a bit, and now, as all the world knows, it has turned into a full-scale retreat, and the Germans are a few miles from Alexandria. It wasn't nearly as bad as that when I left the regiment, but nevertheless, it was obvious that things weren't going to be pleasant, that the regiment would be in action again sooner than we all expected. However, it was too late to do anything about it, the last days of, at K, I was not at all happy in my mind. My conscience was pricking me badly. I tried to get my name substituted, but the brigade wouldn't hear of it. 
I arrived at the JSC on May 30th May and did most of the other students. I arrived at the JSC on 30th May, as did most of the other students. About 65 of us in all. This course lasts three months altogether. We're in our seventh week now and certainly make us work. The first week was pretty easy, but soon after they began to shake us. The school is a large ultra-modern building on rising ground near the coast in Palestine. The large army garrison of Seraphand is very close. Most of the students who are from all branches of the army and from the Dominions also sleep in the building. But some of us whose names begin with letters at the end of the alphabet sleep in tents. The situation is certainly ideal. We can look over the orange groves towards the sea. The large and well-tended gardens are full of flowers. For purpose of study, we're split up into syndicates of eight, and the syndicates are changed once a fortnight. For various syndicate discussions, a leader is appointed. Coordinating and managing all this as a directory staff and then officers, who really are instructors, are not only most of them young, but are full of charm and have had considerable experience. Each member of the DS is responsible for a syndicate, and at the end of each fortnightly period, he writes notes on each of the eight students who's been under his supervision. Thus, with the changing round of the syndicates, it means that each DS has an opportunity to give his opinion on a student, and at the end of the course, a real cross-section of opinion is available. Before breakfast, we have PT out on the lawns, and this is made interesting by the fact that we don't go in for physical jerks. We either go over an assault course or learn tough tactics from a qualified instructor, or else play some kind of recreational game. The latter is rather futile. After breakfast, we work steadily away until 1 o'clock, lunchtime, attending lectures or going to the syndicate discussions or doing exercises such as staff tables and movement orders. Sometimes we spent the whole day in the field. Usually the afternoon is free, but very often one has to work through it in order to catch up with the morning business. Working in the heat of a Palestinian summer isn't very pleasant. There are quite reasonable sports facilities, a squash court and a tennis court, and horses down at Seraphand. After tea, we work until about seven and very often continue with private studies in the syndicate rooms in the evenings. Life is full and hardworking, but it's not all work and no play, for we have a real weekend. From Saturday lunchtime, we are quite free until Monday morning, and most people are away for the weekend. There's an excellent club near here called the Jaffa Club. Its facilities may not be marvelous, but its situation is grand. There's a good sandy beach onto the Medi from which one can hire canoes and surf boats, and also on the beach there's a terrace where one can buy drinks and sandwiches. The rationing is getting pretty tight in Palestine now. If one wants tea with sugar, one's wise to take one's own sugar. Jaffa Club also possesses a squash court. Bus comes to the staff school on Saturday afternoons on Sunday mornings to take us out to Jaffa. Lying out in the sun and swimming from time to time makes a marvelous change from the hard sweat of the academy. The hard sweat of the academy. You know it seems strange to write that went that when one thinks what's going on there at Alamein. I had a letter from Denny Player two or three days ago, and it seems that the regiment has had a peculiar time of it. Shortly after I was left, it was whisked up somewhere near the front. At Mers Matra, it had the unpleasant experience of having to hand over its tanks to people just out from England and to teach them the rudiments of handling American tanks, which they'd not touched before. Which they'd not touched before. Now apparently the regiment's back in Amaria.
A half-term break, I went up to Jerusalem. King David and the Eden were crowded out with refugees from Egypt. This was about a week ago. One fashionably dressed woman sat silently weeping in the lounge. A pathetic sight. We get driven back from Alamein and the Germans... If we get driven back from Alamein and the Germans actually capture Cairo, no one seems to know exactly what the policy is, or what happens next, or what happens to us, or what happens to anybody. I expect back in England you think that the Middle East has made a pretty poor show of this, and your morale isn't very high. It's funny, though, how one hopes on, as though hoping is any good, and yet it is good. He who hopes for victory is not going to give in so easily to defeat. The work here continues with exactly the same smooth regularity, as though there was, there was no great crisis on. There's only one way not to be defeated, and that is not to accept defeat. It's a long time since I did any good reading. I've got no time here. I look forward to your letters. Yours, Stuart. Letter 18. Dear CB, in a transit camp in Mosul, near the Turkish frontier, near the picturesque mountains of Kurdistan, I'm writing this letter. I'm here more or less by my own choice and liking it. Before I left the staff school, I was asked what sort of appointment I would like. I said I'd like to go to an armored brigade. One of the DS said, well, supposing you can't do that, what would you like next? And I stated I'd like to go to one of the military missions to our allies. That's exactly what did happen to me. There were about eight officer students from the RAC on the course, but at the end of the course, there were only three staff vacancies on armored formations. And with the exception of one officer, these appointments went to regulars. So I found myself posted to the British military mission to the Polish army in the east. I left the school as a staff captain, and the first seven weeks of my new job I spent in Cairo, where we have an office attached to GHQ. This was most interesting as one was able to get a complete view of what was happening to the Poles and was in a position to see all the high policy signals. We have sections of the mission with the various formations and if one goes to one of their sections at first one gets only a very limited viewpoint of the Poles and the Polish question. Working for those few weeks in Cairo gave me the broad outline. It's only about 10 days since I left Cairo. The journey up here has been most interesting. Traveled to Haifa by train and stayed the night in Haifa and went on by car from Haifa to Damascus. During this part of the journey, I was traveling with some civilians who had just been repatriated by the Japanese. They were all consular officials and some of them had been captured and interned in Burma, others in China and a few in Japan itself. Amongst these was a young bespeckled man of Canadian extraction called Blakey. He was rather an unusual type. Not only was he an extremely accomplished pianist, an excellent chess player, was a qualified Gulbertson bridge player. An excellent chess player, but was a qualified Gulbertson bridge player. He'd been living in Tohirs, I think it was Tokyo, for several years and had been earning a living by teaching the more prosperous Japanese how to play the piano. His stories about the Japs were very interesting, and I never realized that the Japs were extremely enthusiastic players of American football. Some of these people had, quite clearly, been treated better than others. At Damascus, we boarded the famous Nairn bus, and these machines are astonishing. This transport system created to cross the 800-mile stretch of desert between Damascus and Beirut by two New Zealand brothers who stayed on after the last war to open up and pioneer the way. And what a system! 
Your latest buses have the driver's cabin and engine out in front and haul behind them a long, streamlined, air-conditioned cabin. The padded seats are rather similar to the kind you find in modern airliners, adjustable. There's a small bar which serves drinks, but not at a cheap price, and the company brings around a tasty cardboard box of sandwiches and fruit. My first contact with Iranian civilization... My first contact with Iraqian civilization was, I thought at the time, but a short overture to future unhappy acts. But now that I've been uh, seen more of the country, I find that I misjudged it then. At 12.15 in the morning, we arrived in Rufa, which is a sort of halfway halting place between Damascus and Baghdad. Tumbling out of the Nairn bus, we were immediately ankle deep in a sticky, muddy puddle with mosquito-infested water covering the sand oozing through. Tumbling out of the Nairn bus, we were immediately ankle-deep in a sticky, muddy puddle with mosquito-infested water oozing through sand boots. We splashed some twenty slippery yards across to the Rupa Hotel. Once inside, all visions, hopes, and expectations of a piping hot meal were quite obliterated. Steaks seemed to be 200 miles from here, and cold buffet probably no nearer than Gazira. Around the rather rickety tables containing traces of last year's crumbs sat ill-assorted, dismal, and dejected groups of human beings, natives, officers in various uniforms, and civilians on their way, way by Nairn to wherever they were going. Stuck on the walls were posters, a trifle moth-eaten and out of place, of Winston Churchill and also the destroyers racing through the cold North Sea. In view of the fact that the majority of these propaganda efforts were at different angles on the wall, and one was actually upside down, they lost something of their austerity. Flapping unhygienically over otherwise, hmm, flapping unhygienically over otherwise open doorways were the cheapest imitations of Persian carpets. They were gaudily colored and portrayed rather complicated scenes of the more proper forms of Iraqi domestic life. To any but the least aesthetic type of African headhunter, they were violently bilious. With an airing promptitude, the native would-be waiters, looking like undersized half-caste Harlem boys clothed by a refuse dump, said, Succumbing, sa. I naturally enough no With unerring promptitude, the native would-be waiters, looking like undersized half-caste Harlem boys, clothed by a refuse dump, said, and sa, and naturally enough, nothing came in spite of the fact that this desert hostelry could only boast of coffee, tea, and stale waterlogged biscuits. Then at last a pot of coffee arrived and looked unwillingly at me across the table. Last around the pot was a quantity of rusty wire placed there in order to prevent the lid from bouncing about all over the place. Following the coffee by ten minutes came the biscuits, which rivaled the can of Swiss condensed milk for age. For this repast, I was charged... Following the coffee by ten minutes came the biscuits, which rivaled the can of Swiss condensed milk for age. For this repast, I was charged 125 fills. English money, two and sixpence, or one-eighth of a pound. Approximately nine pence more than a first-class London hotel would have charged in peacetime. This robbery, which lacked even professional finesse, was accompanied by a desperate attempt on the part of the waiter to charge another officer for a packet of cigarettes he had brought into the place himself. We were therefore rather glad to leave Rupa. At about nine o'clock, we rolled into the outskirts of Baghdad. Another mission officer, Peter Vigor, had been traveling with me, and we reported um, at HQ of 
Another mission officer, Peter Vigor, had been traveling with me, and we reported in at HQ of the mission. Though we were two days in Baghdad, we saw little of it, and most of the place was out of bounds. Certainly it is an oriental-looking city. It does not possess the modern atmosphere of Cairo. Baghdad is permeated by the Indian Army. After two days there, we went up to the HQ of the Polish Corps, about four hours motor trip from Baggers. It was only there a, a, I was only there a day when I was sent off up here to Mosul with the advance party of the 3 Carpathian Division. It took us two days to reach here, staying at the night at Kirkut. Mosul, or what we've seen of it so far, is good. It's like something out of a storybook. It looks Arab and is oriental, and yet is reasonably clean. At the back of the city, about 40 miles away, are mountains. Also, there are plenty of horses here, which is a very good thing. Yours, Stuart. That concludes episode three of Dear CB, a soldier's <clears throat> that concludes episode three of Dear CB, a soldier's experience of war through letters. We will be putting up episode four shortly, so hopefully you will join back with us. And continue the story of Stuart and what he gets up to in the desert. <laughs>